and good morning everyone and welcome to the other side of midnight that magical time between dusk and dawn where well you know almost anything can happen like just did I was turning on the wrong pot you know this live radio stuff it's really it's it's kind of like an acquired taste this morning we have an extraordinary show for you I've been wanting to have my guest this morning on the other side of midnight for some time, and by the grace of whatever gods there are out there, we finally were able to get him. And we're going to take you through an extraordinary range of issues and perspectives and insights with the overall meta theme being penetrating secrets. We live in a world where we're surrounded by secrets. And before we went on the air, we were talking, um, my guest and I and the rest of the gang who's behind the scenes. And what I didn't want to say behind the scenes, I will say now on the air, and that is as much as there are secrets floating around us, there also means and technologies and applications to confront secrets. And I'm talking specifically, of course, about social media. When I started doing this kind of stuff, when I was, you know, first called by Art Bell to do uh, Coast to Coast, um, it was a totally different world. The Internet, the interchange of information, the availability of multiple sources, the ability to cross-correlate did not exist. Now, of course, as you're going to hear this morning, yes, we're up to our... um, Uh, Adam's apple in all kinds of secrets, but there's also the ability to penetrate the secrets because for everyone out there keeping a secret, there are those who, um, shall we say, also um, have the ability to tell us the truth. And sometimes the truth is not a straight line. In fact, most of the times it's not a straight line. It goes back again to you don't Click on the first thing you see on the internet and believe it. This skill of penetrating secrets, particularly cosmic secrets, secrets of the ages, timeless secrets, requires that you really use both sides of your brain, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, because it's not only intuition, it's logical thinking and the elimination of that which is more than likely not true in favor of that which is more than likely real. Anyway, um, let me let me start with, uh, with our overall theme. We're going to be talking about the Bible tonight, which is a book of secrets. And it has an extraordinary and very uh, convoluted history. And my guest tonight, who I will now mention, Jordan Maxwell. Jordan is here. Jordan is probably the first guy I encountered who had a real knack, a real ability, a real talent. I might almost say a multidimensional talent in it to kind of read between the lines. And so one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is the secrets still hidden. I mean, not really very deeply hidden, but kind of hidden in plain sight In Genesis. So without further ado, let me uh, go to something that for me, 50 plus years ago, was a riveting new 
revelation in terms of Genesis. And if we can arc ourselves back in time, on Christmas Eve, 1968, it went like this. Now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a ferment in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the ferment. And divided the waters which were under the ferment from the waters which were above the ferment. And it was so. And God called the ferment heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> My friend Walter would have said, that's the way it was, December 24th, 1968. Um, I want to introduce my guest because it's an important and appropriate segue. Jordan Maxwell is many, many, many things. I, In fact, I've known Jordan for so long, I forget exactly how we met. So maybe as part of this morning's conversation... Uh, he can refresh my memory, or maybe both of us have lost that moment in time. Jordan continues to be the most preeminent researcher and independent scholar in the field of occult and religious philosophy that I know. His interest in these subjects, which we're going to delve into this morning, go as far back as 1959, one year after President Eisenhower created something called the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Jordan served for three and a half years as a religion editor of Truth Seeger magazine, America's oldest free thought journal since 1873. No, he's not that old, but you know. His work has been in exploring hidden foundations of Western religions, secret societies, and it has created extraordinary responses from audiences literally around the world. I mean, Jordan has conducted Dozens of seminars, hosted his own radio show, guested on more than 600 of these shows, and written, produced, and appeared in numerous television productions and documentaries, including three two-hour specials for the CBS television network. Gosh, that sounds familiar. 
as well as the internationally acclaimed five-part ancient mystery series, all devoted to understanding ancient religions and their pervasive, if somewhat hidden, influence on world affairs today. His work on the subject of secret societies, both of ancient and modern times, and their symbology has fascinated audiences for decades. Now, considering the rapidly moving events of today, and if there's anybody out there who disagrees that events are moving at light speed, please, in the third hour, call in and tell us where we're wrong. Anyway, a very real part of that hidden religious agenda plays in our modern war-torn world is part of Jordan's continuing scholarship. He feels these controversial subjects are not only of interest to explore, but too important to ignore. Jordan's extraordinary presentations include documents and photographs, in other words, evidence, seldom seen elsewhere. So without further ado, Jordan Maxwell, this is your life. No, <laughs> welcome to the other side of midnight. Well, Richard, thank you for very much for having me on the program and for thinking of me. And it's truly an honor for me to be on your show. I have admired your work for many years. I've tried to show you I'm, I wanted to be your friend. And it's it's been a quite a ride for both of us. And I don't remember where I first met you. I do remember at the Hardware Humanitarian House in, in Santa Monica, uh, where you and quite a few others, quite a few of our friends, our mutual friends, uh, came to hear a slide presentation that I had put together. Do you remember that one? Dimly. I mean, I've done so many of those speeches and presentations <laughs> and conferences. And, you know, it's like, you know, there are certain people in your life that you've kind of always known. Yes, and I yes. was really trying to think back, when did Jordan, and I can't remember. I know it was before I met Robin, many, many years before I met Robin. So that puts it to at least 20 years. And mm -hmm. I would bet more likely 30 or maybe even 40 years. I mean, your work opened my eyes to all kinds of possibilities that I hadn't considered uh, when I got into this, which was, of course, through the so-called Martian doorway. So let's let's go back. Let's let's kind of do a Ralph Edwards here thing. Let's go back to 1959. When was it, and where were you, Jordan, when you first realized, oh my God, they're not telling us the truth? Yes, boy. <clears throat> It was in 1959, which is almost 60 years ago. I arrived in Los Angeles as a 19-year-old kid, born in 1940, wanted to be on my own, so I struck out to end up in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, not knowing anyone in Los Angeles, I had no friends here, no family, nothing. And... I had some extraordinary experiences as if there was a spirit following me and watching me. And I would meet strange people and learn a lot of interesting things. I've had some extraordinary experiences. And one in particular I'd like to tell you about because it really changed my life. It was a, one of those moments, those aha moments. Uh, I lived about two blocks from town from downtown in a little city back in 1959 called North Hollywood. It was a little small city just north of 
Hollywood. <clears throat> Hollywood. That's why it was called North Hollywood. But it was also a little Mickey Mouse town back then in '59. And every and on Saturday mornings, I would walk down to downtown, two blocks from where I lived, uh, to have breakfast at the local cafe. And one morning, I one Saturday morning, I went in, and the place was absolutely crowded. There was no room anywhere. <clears throat> but there was one chair at the counter. So I went over and sat down at the counter, and I'm sitting next to a girl, a young lady, about 17 years old, and I'm 19. And so we started talking and come to find out she lived on the same street I did, but three or four blocks, four blocks from town. I only lived two blocks. So after breakfast, we started hanging out, walking around town, going to movies, and just hanging out and, and enjoying each other's company. And then when we walk home, she always knew where I lived because I got home first. But I never followed her home, so I didn't know exactly where she lived. But I knew it was close. <clears throat> One Friday night, she came over to my place at about 10 o'clock at night and said, My dad wants to talk to you tonight. And I said, I'm not interested to talk to your father. She said, My father is a very important man, and he's got something to tell you. And you need to come here and help. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I said, okay. So I went. So wait, wait, wait. How, how long have you known her at that point? Oh, uh, maybe a month or two. And her maybe father wanted to meet this mysterious person. Hmm. Yes. And her father wanted to meet me. He had something to tell me, she said. That, I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay, I'm I'm open. So I went with her, <clears throat> and I now for the first time see where she lives for the first time. And as we were walking up to her front door, her father happened by chance to be coming out the front door, and I saw him, and he saw us, and immediately the hair raised up on the back of my neck, and I felt a very powerful, strong, spiritual presence. I didn't know what to think of it. It was kind of frightening but not challenging. I just knew there was something strange about this man because I was feeling it. And so he motioned for us to come in the house, which we did, and I was kind of leery about doing that because of what I was feeling about him. But I thought, well, he's the father of my girlfriend, so, I mean, how bad could it be? So we went in, <clears throat> my girlfriend's sister, my girlfriend, as I said, was about 17, and uh, and her sister was about 10 years old. The two girls sat on the floor, and there was a large sofa in the front room. The father sat on one end of the sofa, and I sat on the other. <laughs> and we were, and he was questioning me about, you know, who I am and where I've come from, and told me about his daughter. Said that he, she met me in the restaurant, etc. And so I was feeling a little bit better about him because I knew there was something strange still about this man. But I was feeling better because he was talking about things I could understand and relate to. So in the, he waited till the most uh, appropriate moment in the conversation. And then he said, remember back in Florida when you, when you were back in Florida, your dad built a new back porch onto your house. Do you remember that? And that frightened me. I have no idea in the world how he knew that. Hmm. I never said anyone. And I, and I, and it frightened me because I didn't want to show tears. 
in front of my girlfriend, but he scared me. And he said, well, did, did that happen? I said, yes, it did, yes. And he said, and remember one night you, you were supposed to be in bed. You were about eight years old, and you got out of bed, didn't you? And you remember this? And you went out on the back porch, and you sat on the back porch, and you could smell the new back porch because it was made out of green lumber. And it smelled funny at nighttime. And remember how you picked the green lumber with your finger and made a toothpick out of it and was chewing on it and smelling it because it was green lumber that smelled funny? He said, do you remember doing that? And that even scared me more. (laughs) He was absolutely correct. And I said, yes, I remember that. And then he said, well, how would I know that? How do I know those things? And I said, I don't know how you know. He said, I know because we were there. We saw you. And I said, I didn't see anyone. He said, I didn't say you saw it. I said, we saw you. And and I said, who is we? He exactly, said, that we'll talk yeah. about later. Yeah. And so then he said, and remember when you were sitting on the back porch, what did you do? You looked up and the moon was, was full. It was a full moon that night. And you talked to God, didn't you? And I I was really frightened because he was right, correct, absolutely correct. And I nodded my head, yes, I did talk to God. And he said, and what did you say to God? And I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. He was scaring me. (laughs) And he said, you said to God that you wanted your life to have a meaning. You didn't want to be on this earth just because you happened to be born, but you wanted your life to have a meaning. You wanted to do something of value. Is that what you said to God? And I shook my head saying, yes, that's what I said. And he said, well, how would I know that if we weren't there, if I wasn't there? And I said, I don't know how you know. And he said, well, when you asked God to let you do something, we were there. And so it was decided that we would let you do something. So today I'm asking you, why are you in Los Angeles? Why did you come here? And I said, I don't know. I just had to do it. And he said, that's right. I brought you here. We brought you here because we have something for you to do with your life. After all, you did ask God to let you do something. So we're going to let you do something. And he said, but don't worry about it now. What you're going to do for us, you will not do until the last part of your life. And I said, what is it I'm supposed to do? And he said, you will know when that time comes. There's no need to tell you now. But when that time comes and for us to call upon you to do what we have brought you here to do, you will know what it is. And so that scared me a lot, (laughs) along with everything else. And uh, so he said, it'll be the last part of your life. Well, I used to go over to my girlfriend's house on weekends, and sometimes the whole family, the mother, the two girls, myself, and the father, and we would drive out to Palm, Palmdale, like about 50 miles north of Los Angeles, out to the area where the big uh, defense contractors like Lockheed, et cetera, were, were located. And we would drive way out in the in the mountainous side, the mountainside. We'd drive way out in the... Uh, in the desert, should I should say. Yeah, by Edwards Air and, Force Base. Yeah, and he would tell me all about, we would find holes in the ground, mounds with holes, 
and we would go down into these holes in the ground, these mounds, which are now covered because homes have been built. <clears throat> but he would tell me about the different alien life forms which were here on the earth and how they were living underground. And I'm just a 19-year-old kid. I was fascinated because I knew that this man was special. I could feel it about him, and he was extraordinarily interesting. And uh, so <clears throat> that was that. And so we would come home, and he would tell me all about the extraterrestrials that were on the earth, who they were, and what they're doing here. <clears throat> and so that was my first, uh, my first actual deal that I actually experienced with which I believe that he was not of this world. And so as, as he was telling me these things, he then said to me, and that, and that first night on the sofa, he then said to me, would you like to see some UFOs up close? And I said, yes, I would. He said, yeah, I thought I, we thought so, because we've been watching you for a long time. We know who you are and what your interests are. And he said, if you want to see some UFOs up close, come with me now, and I will. I can do that for you. That was the way he said it. That I could do for you. So come with me. So I got up with him, and the two of us walked out in the porch. The two girls got up, and they followed us out onto the porch at about 11 o'clock at night in North Hollywood in the San Fernando Valley. And he looks up into the sky, and he starts inaudibly talking. His mouth is moving as if he's talking to someone but there's no sound. Then he turns to me and he said, they said that they'll be coming from the Griffith Park area going north. So they'll be coming from over there. And he pointed to the Griffith Park area. They'll be coming from there and they're going north and they will stop to see us for a few moments. And I said, who? And he said, well, you said you wanted to see UFOs. Yes, I did. Well, then just wait. They said they'll be here in a few moments which about a minute and a half to two minutes later, incredibly, they absolutely showed up. Three beautiful circular-shaped objects, uh, some kind of a, uh, what am I talking about? What am I saying? Some kind of a craft that were glowing. They were glowing colors. And they all three were identical, making no sound whatsoever as they came from the south going north, as he said, and they stopped right over the top of us. And what, I, what, they, what they were, were they were the size of the full moon, not a little light in the sky, mm. but a full moon size. All three were glowing colors. On the bottom of, of, the, of the craft, it was like a six or an eight point, uh, six or eight slices of a, of a pie. And each slice was a different color. And it was circulating, but not so fast as to blend the colors. But um, they were like, the, like those scenes in Close Encounters. Yes. And, and it's exactly. And <clears throat> there was three of them in formation. And then he looks up at them and I'm staring at them. And I look down to look at my girlfriend and she's looking at me as if to say, see, I told you my father was important. <clears throat> and I have no idea what's going on, who this girl is, what her father is. I don't know how he did this. He looked up and talked to the sky, and they show up, and then they leave. And Ooh. he said, they said that they'll be watching you. They'll, they'll be back. 
and they will see you again. They're leaving now. And they did. They started to leave. And we stood there watching them as they went northward until they were finally gone. They didn't fly very quickly. When he came out on the porch before this all happened, you had this impression of him as someone who had energy and power, and it was kind of of off-putting. Okay. Did you get any kind of psychic reading on the vehicles, on on the craft? No, but I instinctively knew in my spirit, this was not of this world. I knew that. I could feel it, that this was, I'm now in the presence of an other world power. I knew that. It's just what I felt as a 19-year-old kid. And it was kind of frightening and yet so incredibly beautiful. I was dazzled by it. And so when they left, as they went to go north, they left, and, and I said, what was that we just saw? And he said, that's us. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean us? He said, we've been here for a long time. We've been watching you for a long time, and you did ask God to let you do something, so we brought you here so you can do it. So he said, I'm going to give you a book, and I want you to take the book and read it. And I'm going to start you on your journey tonight to who you're going to be in the future. I'm going to begin your journey for you tonight. And he pulled the book up off of the shelf, and it was called The Complete Works of Charles Fort. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And he had it. He said, now take this home. This will begin your journey and who you're going to be in the future. Take it home and read it, and I'm giving it to you as a present. And I said, well, thank you. And I did. And it dazzled me. And the, and the more he he would open up the book indiscriminately, just open up the book and read a, a paragraph or a half a paragraph, a few sentences. But it was so incredibly interesting what he read. And each time he would just indiscriminately open up the book and read another couple of sentences from another page. But it was uh, he just knew how to catch my attention. I'll tell you what, we and, got about three minutes to the bottom of the hour. For folks that don't know who Charles Fort was, give us a couple of, of the sketch because Fort was a journalist and he documented weird things happening all over the planet in the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, through the early part of the twentieth century. What was it that captured you about Fort's stories? Uh, the fact that there was no one on the earth who could explain away what happened. Because, as you know, uh, Charles Fort's book documented on every article he talked about, there was a footnote telling you where he got the story, who wrote it, what page it was on, and what paper it appeared in, what magazine, etc. So he heavily documented, but there was no possible way for anyone to explain why these things happened. And so it drew my attention. Well, give, a, us a, give us a couple know, of examples of those stories. Well, one in particular was that there was a little town in the, in mid-California back in the 1800s that twice, two or three times in this little town, once a year on a particular day at a particular hour, enormous boulders, enormous boulders would fall out of a crystal blue sky. And they would come down, not at a free fall speed, but it would take most of the day for them to come down. You could see them coming, but they moved so slow. Oh, and my they, and, God. And as, they, and as they came down, they would hit the ground and be gone 
you know, whatever was in their way, if your house was in the way, it's too bad. If your car was in the way, it's too bad. Because when they come out of the sky, these enormous boulders fell out from a blue sky on the earth. But when they hit the ground, the action was exactly what it would have been if you had dropped a large boulder out. When it hits the ground, it would hit the ground very slow. It would take a long time for it to to hit. But you would see the dirt beginning to rise as it hit the ground very slowly. And over a period of time, the dirt would continue to rise because you could see it going deeper into the ground. And the the whole thing happened as it normally would if you had dropped a heavy boulder out. But it happened over a period of hours. And uh, and the people could watch it, all the stuff coming out of a crystal blue sky. And nobody was ever able to discuss where it came from, how it happened, or what it what it all meant. And this happened year by year on the same date, this slow motion, boulders falling from a crystal clear sky. Yes, this was in mid-California, according to the book. According oh, to the my book. gosh. And, uh, and I'll tell you so, what, Jordan, hold it there because I want to think about yeah. this. Um, my guest this morning is Jordan Maxwell, the Jordan Maxwell, who obviously met someone very – I mean, I'm thinking that the, the, the meeting of with his girlfriend was obviously not an accident. It was arranged. And we're going to find out more what happened to that relationship when we come back. You're on the other side of Midnight – My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 17th of August, 2019. God, August already. The fall and the winter, I guarantee you, is going to um, surprise a lot of folks. Jordan, um, did we ever get your girlfriend's name, and what happened to you guys? Well, one day, one Saturday morning, I went over expecting to see my girlfriend and possibly go out with the family, as we sometimes did. But they, but the house was wide open with all the doors and windows open, no furniture. It was they had absolutely gone. Where I have no idea, but they were absolutely gone. And I was shocked that my girlfriend didn't tell me she was leaving. Nobody let me know they were just gone. But I've thought about that over the years, and now I understand it. I didn't then because I was only 19, but I do now know. I really believe that he had done what he was given to do, and that was to start me on my journey. Once he did that, he moves on to the next project that he was given to do. I think he was given that to do for me, and once it was done and, and I had the book and he knew I was locked in on my destiny, then he could move on to his next work, to the next job. And so that's why I've always believed about him. But I have another I have another uh, experience that I would like to tell you about like that. Hey, we have three uh, hours. Whatever, wherever you. I mean, this is this is this is so astonishing because it's almost like Jordan, and I'm going to use this as a metaphor. I don't mean it literally, but it almost is like you had a personal guardian angel with other angels in the same family masquerading as a kind of a you know middle class american family but as you just said a moment ago their mission was to open your doorway that's right precisely that's what he said he said i have to start you on your journey tonight that's why you're here so take this book and this book will eventually you will become who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do for us. But it won't happen till the last part of your life. Well what happened and when then, you're when the girl in your life just suddenly disappeared and her whole family in the house is just standing there with the, the I mean yeah, that that must have been for a kid nineteen shocking. World transforming. Shocking because they were they have become my dear family, I mean, I loved the family. I loved the mom and dad, and they, they looked upon me as a son, and so I, I was kind of like their family. And there was no warning. There was no hint. And there was no warning, nothing. I went there. They were gone, period. What was, what was his day job? What did he normally do to make money and live the uh, you know middle-class lifestyle? He said to me that he was a construction worker. He never told me what. He just I I just assumed something in construction, and uh, but he was not of this world. There's no doubt in my mind about it. But I have another I have another tale to tell you. By all means. Uh, back uh, back in the mid uh, early 90s when I was just about when I first met you, I was invited to speak at a UFO conference in Pasadena at a large hotel, and I was supposed to be the keynote speaker there. And so the people, the two guys that were putting it on, you would know them if I gave you their names. You would know them. They put on some big 
big conferences back then in the early 90s. And they called me and they said, we're going over to the hotel that we're going to host the program next week at the hotel. But we want to go over and kind of spy out the hotel. You want to go with us? I said, sure, I'd love to. So they come by, pick me up, and we go over to the hotel that we're going to be speaking at the following week. And we're wandering around, and then we ended up in the lobby sitting there, and the three of us were talking, and they said to me, the two guys putting the show on, they said, Jordan, what are you going to do as a presentation? What do you need? Do you need a uh, uh, projectors, a blackboard? What, what are you going to do? What will you need? And I said, no. I don't want a projectors. Here's what I want. I want a table, just a table and a chair so I can sit on uh, and I can look at the audience as a teacher. I want no props, nothing around me. I just want to be able to have a microphone at the table so I can spread out the papers and documents and books I want to talk about. And I want to be able to see the audience and them to see me as a teacher. That's it. So just a table and chair is all I want. So he said, so one of the two uh, sponsors said, all right, I'll tell you what we'll do. We will put behind you uh, a guy with a camera, with a video camera, and we'll put him on, on a bar stool sitting behind you, just over your shoulder, so that if you pull up a book to talk about or a paper or whatever it is you're talking about, hold it up because he's going to have the camera right over your shoulder. And, he's, and he'll be able to zoom in on it. We'll have a closed-circuit television so everybody in the audience will see exactly what you're talking about. They can read it with you. And I said, that sounds great. Let's do it. So that following week on Saturday morning, I talked for two and a half hours, uh, extemporaneous lecture and with all my documents and books and stuff. And sure enough, there was a delightfully good friend, a good, nice guy that I had met you know, uh, different conferences, and he was sitting on the stage with me on a, a bar stool behind me. And so when I'm speaking about something, I pick up the paper, and I would hold it up in such a way that he was right behind me, and he could zoom in on it for the audience. And so after the conference was over that evening, everyone was leaving, he came over to me and said, Jordan, my wife and I would like to have you come over for dinner this evening. Would you come? And I said, of course, I'd love to. So I went to his, his uh, apartment in Pasadena, upstairs, a beautiful, a beautiful condo upstairs. And his wife was in the, in the kitchen cooking dinner. And he and I were sitting in the front room just talking about UFOs and all kinds of interesting subjects that we had talked about that day. And after a few minutes, his wife came out and said to him in front of me, she said, have you told him yet? And he said, no, I wasn't going to tell him till after dinner. And she said, well, tell him now. And I said to him, I don't like surprises. Tell me what? What were you going to tell me after dinner? And he said, well, I have a story that I have been telling everybody I've met. My wife has heard the story many times. I'm now going to tell you the story. He said, when I was 17 years old, he said, I just turned 50 years old a couple of weeks ago. And he said, but when I was 17 years old, I was back on the East Coast, 
and one of the New New England states, and I was thumbing my way in summer. I was thumbing my way north to go stay with my cousin for a long, for you know, for a summer vacation. And he said, and an old man picked me up in a truck, and that truck was absolutely filthy, old, beat up. It looked like to be a hundred years old, <laughs> and the old man driving it looked even worse. It was, he looked like he was uh, over, well over 100 years old, and yet the truck, he said, the truck smelled terrible because it was, he had cigarettes, pipes, and anything he could light, it was, uh, he was smoking. And he said, but at least it was, a, at least it's wheels, so I got in, and he said, as we took off, he began telling me all of my life story, and he said, it frightened me. I've never oh, heard such a thing. My. This man began telling me about my mother and her family and her where she comes from, my dad and his work and his company and my girlfriend and my sister's boyfriend. And there was nothing that this old man did not know about my family. Absolutely correct. And he said, and when he let me out, he said, I was just dazzled as to who is this old man who knows so much about me. And he said, as he let me out, he said to me, everything I have told you up to now was to get your attention and to entertain you. Now I'm going to tell you something important, and you better remember it. He said, after you're 50 years old, you're going to be on the other side of this country, and one morning you're going to find yourself on a stage with a camera that does not exist today, but it will then. And you're going to have this camera that doesn't exist and you're going to be sitting behind a man at a table addressing the audience. And you're going to be sitting right behind him so that when he picks up the paper or book, the audience will be able to see it because of the camera you have. And he said, when you find yourself on the stage with this man sitting at the table, you tell him that I put him there. <laughs> I put him there. It was not his bright idea. I decided that. I decide where he will speak and where he won't and what and where how he will speak and what he will talk about. You tell him, I said, I put him there. And when he said that, it frightened me. And I got up and I was very nauseous. I really didn't feel like staying to eat or anything. It scared me. And I got up and I walked out, went downstairs, and I walked out into the lawn and walked out to the sidewalk. And he came rushing out behind me, and we walked along the street together at about 11 o'clock at night and and he said I have to tell you he told me to tell you that I, I said what does all of this mean he said I have no idea I'm just telling you what he said it would happen after I was 50 years old I just turned 50 and be damn if I'm not on the stage with you and he said I would be some 33 years ago he told me that you will be on the stage with this man and tell him I put him there so I don't know what to do with that. All I know is what I well, what he said. And my gut feeling was that's true. I was being manipulated and exploited to do something that I had asked God to let me do. And I have no idea what it means. <laughs> I don't know what it well, is. Well that goes back to that old old cliche, be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs> And so that opened up a, a, a whole world to me. Once I found out that somebody has the power to put me where they want and have me do what I'm supposed well, to no, do. Well, no, wait, 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 wait. Let's not jump to conclusions. 
do they have the power to to create a context for you to do this, or do they have the ability to read the record to see what it is that you are going to do? Big difference. Well, all I know is that when someone tells me where I'm going to be and what I'm going to do, and then I do it months and years before I'm told, and then it happens, I do believe that there's somehow we do not have the freedom that we think we do. Somehow or another, some of us do not have freedom. It's something like a, uh, some kind of a divine destiny, I think the word would be. Somehow or another, someone has brought you here and caused you to know what you know and introduced you to ideas and concepts, and you became who you're supposed to be ultimately because you're going to do something for the people who brought you here, Hmm. for the people who are in charge. See, my experience, Gordon, is a little different. I've had an awful lot of people, including what you would consider to be bizarre dream states where folks tried to keep me from doing what yeah. I'm doing. Yes. I mean, really, really, really worked really hard to to one night in particular to scare the bejesus out of me to convince me that if I kept doing what I was going to do, we'd wind up in the middle of World War III, including images and sounds. And I mean, it was a full media, full court press and I woke up from this screaming. I've never, ever screamed, you know, and having a nightmare. But I did that this particular night. And I was far away from home. I was at a speaking engagement. And yet, at the same time that I was terrified by what I was being shown and the overwhelming, awful responsibility for basically, if I continued, killing the human race, at the same yep. time, I knew it was a manipulation. I knew it was a lie. And it only re kind of reinvigorated my determination to figure this out and to bring the results, the positive results to the world to change that future. So my experience has been they're not helping. They're trying in every damn way to hinder. And what we're trying to do is in spite of whoever – as opposed to with whoever. Let's go back to 59. Let's go back to your second family disappearing and you're holding a book, Charles Fort. What happened, Jordan, to you and your life and your life's work at that moment? What happened next? I began to have experiences which were unbelievable experiences of meeting people from just quite by chance meeting certain people who became very important in my life and were, they were telling me things about life. They would explain to me certain things as if I was supposed to be their student and they were there to be my teacher. And I began listening to people from all over who were telling me things, just little ideas and little thoughts about, did you know this? Or did you know that this is the way this works? Or did you know that this is the way the government does this or that? And I began perceiving that the whole world is a mystery. Nothing is what you think it is, and nothing works the way you think it does. I mean, I have so many 
uh, examples. I could I could regale you with those stuff all night long. Well, let's start Ideas at the beginning. Start start with the first start with the first insight after this 19 year old experience with a very bizarre guide, guardian angel, whatever family of angels. Yep. What was the first big insight? Well, somebody, I had a dear friend that told me, he, we were talking about the law, and I got very interested in uh, the law because I found out that nothing in law is what you think it is. Zero, nothing. Courts don't work the way you think they do. And that's why I've said so many times, why do you go to court? You play basketball on a court. You play tennis on a court. How do you play tennis on a court? You play with a racket. <laughs> and the more you begin to see how this world works and what the words mean, it's an extraordinary story of betrayal of the human family. Somebody far, far wiser than we are as humans has set this up, and it's incredible how the world really works. Let me give you just a quickie example of how things are hidden right in front of you. For an example, if a policeman pulls you over in traffic and he comes up to the car and, he's, and you have to show him the license and he's writing a ticket for you, okay? When he's writing the ticket, he fills it out, why he's writing it, what the offense is, and then those are the charges. He's charging you with this and that, just like you do with a credit card. And when you walk into Sears, you're going to charge your shoes. And when you get the charge, you're going to sign the paper, and you're expected to pay for the charge because that's what you're being charged for. And so when the cop is signing you uh, a, a, a ticket, it's called, it's called a ticket in commerce because it's a commercial document, paper that is going to change hands. Money is going to change hands. The bank is going to make money off of you. And so when he signs, he fills it out, this is this uh, ticket, and then he signs it. He then hands it to you. What you don't know is when he hands it to you, you are an undersigner. You are a co-signer. And if you take that ticket and photocopy it and send it to the Secretary of State and say, I have decided I don't want to co-sign for this officer, thank you, uh, please take me off of the cosign. Then the Secretary of State will take that, take that ticket, give it to the Treasury Department of the state, and they, and they will contact the, uh, the cop, and he will have to pay the ticket because he's the one that wrote the ticket out, and he's the one that signed it first. You are the undersigner, the cosigner, and so you don't have to pay it. Let the cop pay it. And I know that happened because I saw it happen. And when I saw that, I, I, I was amazed. How does this happen? How does it work? And they said, well, hey, let me explain it to you. When you go to court, here's what's going on, and here's how it works. And then I found out that your body, your physical body, your flesh and blood body of every American is on the New York Stock Exchange, and you're worth about 8 million to $9 million. According to the Federal Reserve, every single body on, in America is worth about $9 million. Can you borrow against you? That's right. You can pay things off and borrow against it. You can't borrow against it, but you can pay things off with it. 
And so I've heard so many people say, oh, that's a bunch of bold. No, no, I've actually seen it with my own eyes where people have paid off apartment buildings, huge debts, and they, and it's all paid off. And to give you an example, I had an airline friend applies for Luke Thompson, and he lost his job doing 9-11. They fired him, and they laid him off because they didn't need him. He had just bought a jet. He had bought his own private jet, paid a lot of money in down payment, and then when he was laid off, he couldn't make the payments. He was going to lose the jet with his money and the whole thing he was going to lose. And so his co-pilot, which is a dear friend of mine, called me from back east and said, Jordan, can you come up with something to help my friend, the the pilot? And I said, no, I don't know how to do that. But I do know someone who can. So I went to my friend who I knew could do things like that because he knew the law. And he said, all right, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And so he wrote a check out of his own computer. My friend brought out his computer and hooked it up to the printer and he had his own bank in his in his computer. And he wrote out a check and the bill for the jet was two hundred and sixty five thousand. And so he made a mistake. My friend typing the checkout made it for two hundred and seventy five thousand. And then he sent it to, in the mail, sent it to my friend back east and said, tell your pilot friend to send this in with the information, the, the paperwork on the plane, and see what happens. Well, about a month later, I get back uh, the information that the plane was paid off and that the Federal Reserve paid off the plane and told him, thank you, your credit is excellent, and thank you for, you know, and we are happy to be able to do this for you. And so a few weeks later, the pilot who paid his plane off got a, a letter from the Internal Revenue for $10,000 overpayment. And he was, and he called me. It was exciting. He said, the Federal Reserve, the Internal Revenue just gave me a $10,000 check and said I overpaid. Well, that alone was conclusive enough for me that this works because if the Federal Reserve paid the plane off and the Internal Revenue gave you back the 10000 you made a mistake on, there must be something to this. There's got to be something going on here. And so the more I got into this, the more I began to find out it's an extraordinary story about how the banks work. You have no idea in the world the way commerce works. You look it up, look up the word commerce and Congress. Congress and commerce are basically the same word. Look it up in a law dictionary and you will find out that commerce is sex, S-E-X, and Congress is sex. And therefore, it will tell you, the article will tell you, you start off with with uh, uh Commerce, chorus, and then you go to Congress. So you begin with chorusing and end up in Congress. Congress is sex, and and commerce is sex. It's because our financial system is based on you and your reproductive ability with another human. Your money is based on sex and you, and that's why on your Social Security card, On the back of your Social Security card, you will find a series of numbers. They're normally, usually, in black and white, 
in black numbers or blue numbers. That's why we say the government's beating you up, black and blue, because <laughs> the numbers are in black or blue. And on my Social Security card, they're in red because they used to be always in red, the numbers on the back of a Social Security card. Why red? Because the numbers on the back of the Social Security card represent your body, your physical flesh and blood body on the New York Stock Exchange. So you call the New York Stock Exchange and you tell them, uh, yesterday I was cleaning my grandmother's uh, house and I found an old uh, uh, form for security, and I wanted to know if there's any if there's any value to the security, and they will say yes. Give us the security number on the security, and you read them the number on the back of your social security card, and they will say, oh yes, this belongs to Richard, uh, 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 Richard uh, Hoagland, and uh, well, how much is it worth? Nine and a half million. If it's worth nine and a half million, can I sell some of it off? To pay some of my bills, of course, you got nine and a half million. And so you can then have the New York Stock Exchange sell off whatever money you need. And now your 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 Social Security card is that much less now on your on your card. But the point being is that if you're losing your home, why don't you have the Federal Reserve pay the home off? by going to the Federal Reserve and having them take the money out of the New York Stock Exchange because you're worth $9 million, but now, most people now, don't know that. Now, Jordan, you understand that for people listening, they think we've gone into the twilight zone, that you're stark, raving mad. Of course. What I'll, kind – What I'll, kind? well, let me ask the next question. What kind of documentation for this can you proffer, can you present? Have you ever written a book on this? Is there anyone no. out there who's written a book on this? And if not, why not? Is this an yes. inside secret? Because it seems to me if it's a secret, you've tripped over fairly you know, quickly in, 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 in your life. Why haven't you, for instance, been able to use this? And, and we don't really have time for the answer right now because we're coming up <laughs> against the top of the hour. Um, yes. But it seems to me that these are – very important questions that we're going to answer when we get back to the other side. We're going to bring in my old friend Tim Saunders, who has some questions of his own. And then in the third hour, I think Kinthea has a couple things she wants to ask you. So mm -hmm. I'll tell you, why don't we just hold it there? My guest this morning is Jordan Maxwell, who, as you can hear, is a very, very interesting person because what he's telling us sounds almost too good to be true too good to be you know 3D too good to be um, transactionable and obviously we're not going to leave this because there is documentation that's one of the things we try to do on this show if we make an extraordinary statement or a guest does we ask for the documentation you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. <laughs> 